the uh, song is quite appropriate for our day today and for our message this morning. Just as I am, I come. I ask you to join me at uh, John chapter 3, verse number 16, this morning. It is a communion Sunday, and as you know, I like to set the service uh, message even in keeping with our remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And this is the verse that we will look at. I think you should know it. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we have your word in front of us today, and we are so needy, not just of all those things that help us to live through a single day. Your grace has showered upon us all that we need, and we thank you for that. But we are in great need to grow in our faith in you, great need to understand you and what you have done, and this grace that you've extended to us that has just engulfed our life and changed us forever. The very words that we read today are so familiar, and yet they are captivating words. And I pray that as we look at them today, we get a much closer view of you. Challenge us with these words today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This last uh, Wednesday night here at the church, our our Bible study, we've been working our way through First John, and we spent some time in chapter 4 this past week, and had a, a great conversation about God's love, and there's a whole, almost a commentary on God's love there in First John chapter 4, and of course you can't go very far into that without recognizing some of these words look very much like John 3.16, and conversation just kept going on and on, and, and uh, there was a story I had remembered um, from the biography of D.L. Moody concerning John 3.16, uh, Harry Morehouse had uh, preached a series of sermons on that very verse. And so we were discussing that a little bit, and it, well, it just triggered my heart. Uh, as I went home that night, next morning I got up, I was thinking more and more about uh, John 3.16, and I thought, well, that's exactly where I'm going to go today. Uh, but I thought I would read to you a story first, the story that is from the life of D.L. Moody related to this very verse. And it would just take a few minutes, but I think you'll appreciate it and enjoy it very much. It was about uh, Harry Morehouse. Harry Morehouse was called the boy preacher. He was somewhere around the age of 17 uh, when he was in ministry. And uh, he was from England, actually, but uh, D.L. Moody found him in uh, Dublin, Ireland, when he was on a crusade over in in that part of Europe, and he ran into Harry Morehouse. And Harry um, wanted desperately to come to Chicago and to speak at Moody's church. This is how the incident follows. Harry came up to him, and Moody looked at him, He was a beardless boy, didn't look as if he was much more than 17, and I said to myself, he can't preach. He wanted me to let him know what boat I was going on, as he would like to return with me. I thought he could not preach. He did not even, uh, and did not, I did not let him know. 
But I had not been in Chicago a great many weeks before I got a letter which said he had arrived this, in this country and that he would come to Chicago and preach for me if I wanted him. I sat down and wrote a very cold letter. If you come west, call on me. I thought that would be the last I should hear from him, and soon after I got another letter. He was still in the country and would come on if I wanted him. I wrote again, telling them that if he happened to come west to drop in on me. In the course of a few days, I got a letter stating that the next Thursday he would be in Chicago. What to do with him, I did not know. I had made up my mind he couldn't preach. I was going to be out of town Thursday and Friday, and I told some of the officers in the church, there's a man coming here Thursday and Friday who wants to preach. I don't know whether he can or not. You better let him try, and I'll be back Saturday. They said that it was a good deal of interest in the church right now, that they did not think they should have him preach then. He was a stranger, and he might do some harm rather than good. Well, I said, you better just try him. Let him preach two nights. When I got back Saturday morning, I was anxious to know how he got on. The first thing I said to my wife was, how is the young Irishman coming along? I had met him in Dublin and took him to be an Irishman, but he happened to be an Englishman. How do people like him? They like him very much. Did you hear him? Yes. Did you like him? Yes, very much. He had preached two sermons from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I think that you would like him, although he preaches a little different from you do. How is that? Well, he tells sinners God loves them. Well, he's wrong. She said, I think you will agree with him when you hear him, because he backs up everything he says with the word of God. You'd think if a man doesn't preach like you, that he's wrong. So I went down that night to church, and then I noticed everyone brought his Bible. My friends began Morehouse. If you will turn to the third chapter of John, in the 16th verse, you will find my text. And he preached the most extraordinary sermon from that verse. He did not divide the text into seconds and thirds and fourths. He just took it as a whole, and he went through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation to prove that in all the ages God loved the world, and he sent his prophets and patriarchs and holy men to warn them, and at last of all he sent his son. After they murdered him, he sent the Holy Ghost. I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out, and I could not keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I just drank it in. The next night, there was a great crowd, for the people liked to hear that God loves them. He said, My friends, if you will turn in your Bible to the third chapter of John, in the 16th verse, you will find my text. He preached another extraordinary sermon from that wonderful verse, and again went on proving God's love, from Genesis to Revelation. He could turn to almost any part of the Bible and prove it. I thought that sermon was better than the other one. He struck a higher chord. It was sweet to my soul to hear it. The next night, it was pretty hard to get out a crowd on, in Chicago on Monday night, but they came. Women left their washing. If they washed, they came, and they brought their Bibles. And he said again, my friends, if you return to the 16th verse of the third chapter of John, you will find my text. And again, he followed it out to prove that God loves us. 
And he just beat it down into our hearts, and I have never doubted it since. I used to preach that God was behind the sinner, with a double-edged sword, ready to hew him down. I have got done with that. I preach now that God is behind the sinner with love, and he is running away from the love of God. Tuesday night came, and we thought surely he exhausted that text, and that he would take another, but he preached the sixth sermon from that wonderful text. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, not going to have when you die, but have it right here and now, eternal life. Although many years have rolled on, the hearers never have forgotten it. The seventh night came, and he went into the pulpit. Every eye was upon him. All were anxious to know what he was going to preach about. He said, my friends, I have been hunting all day for a new text. I cannot find one as good as the old one. So we will go back to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse. And he preached the seventh sermon from that wonderful text. I remember the closing up of the sermon. He said, my friends, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. But I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder, climb up into heaven, ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much the Father has loved the world, all he would say would be, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that quite an episode? Seven sermons on John 3.16. This morning, we will focus on that. Not seven sermons long. But two words. The middle of the verse, it says, Whosoever believes. Whosoever believes. Now, how many times have we heard that invitation? Whosoever believes. Extended to us. For us to believe. I'm a whosoever. 1976, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. You too, most of you, if not all of you, have responded to that invitation too. You have responded to the gospel message. You, you have heard it declared from this pulpit so many times, I know, that today is the day of salvation. The appeal has been made to us over and over to put our faith in Christ. As a pastor, I appeal to you again. Here is another day. Here is another moment. Here is another time you hear it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel message. That's what's proclaimed to us over and over and over in Scripture. It was Peter who wrote in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, he says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. That's what we do many times when we set up a communion service. We reflect back again on what he has done and in our relationship with him, don't we? We ask those questions again in our heart that though we've heard it so many times before and we're convinced, even what John has said in this book, he said these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You believe that, don't you? That's what you believe. 
You have come to understand that. And you could contemplate a communion service and, and appreciate the words that Paul said to a Philippian jailer one day when he says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's an appeal. And we need to hear that appeal over and over and over again, don't we? The appeal that we are called to to believe what he has to say. Now, we always attach that phrase, whosoever believes, onto that phrase. Now, I started my sermon preparation a couple days ago with this verse in mind. I have this wonderful illustration that I thought through, woke up with. I said, hey, this is going to work really, really well. And I thought that through, and I was excited about it and putting it all together. You know, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and the whole scene, it's just an exciting thing, developing very nicely on my sermon notes and everything else. And I have to admit, I started with an assumption. And I teach a class in the spring, and they would give me a bad grade for that one. You don't start with assumptions. I was already well into this when I went to the Greek text to look at John 3.16. Guess what? When I opened that up, what I expected to find was not there. I said, oh no. You see, there are two little Greek words, and I don't do this to impress you, but just to tell you. There are two little Greek words I expected to find because that's the phrase, whoever. Haas and on. I was looking for that. And I opened it up, looking for it, and I said, well, that's all I need. Just give me that. Anchors it down. All done. It's not there. And I said, huh. Matter of fact, I was absolutely stopped in my tracks with the word that was sitting in its place. Now I've got your curiosity, don't you? It was the word, everyone. And you say, huh? That's all it said. Pass is the word there. It was the word everyone. I wasn't expecting that. It doesn't say whosoever believes. It says everyone believing in him shall not perish. And I actually closed my Bible and had to go for a drive. Because my sermon was ready. But it's not what the text said. And I had to stop and say, okay, now what do I do, Lord? I could just go with the English text here, but I wasn't comfortable. So I said, what do I do? Is this important? Is this enough for us to say, what's the difference, and why should, why should pastor put a whole sermon together of this nature? What, what's the thing? Let me, let me try to explain it in a simple way. There is a difference between an invitation to believe and a declaration of the purpose of God in sending His Son. That's the difference I set before you today. There is a difference between raising a question whether or not we will believe or not, and a statement of the great things God has done. There's a difference between those two. And what you are looking at in John 3.16 is a proclamation it's a proclamation of what God has done. Look at these words, and I'm going to say it to you as I've seen it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Who's doing all the action there? God is. 
See, he's the one initiating here, right? He's the one moving and causing. He is operating. God loves the world. God gave. Now, just a simple thought to get you thinking this way. Are we to think that God is up there now in heaven, after giving his son to die for us, just waiting to see if anyone's going to accept his offer? A couple months ago, I put an ad in the paper trying to get rid of my dog. I got a few responses and decided uh, I'm not going to give it to them. The things they wanted to do with my dog, my dog would not have liked it. I wouldn't have liked it. Uh, she's not a, you don't chain her in a backyard and have her scare off people, especially the one lady who called and said, well, they poisoned my last one. And I said, oh, <laughs> so Pepper wasn't going there. Several, several, several years ago, I put an advertisement in the paper for a yard sale. I'm honest with you folks. No one came. Could you imagine that? No one came. I was mentioning that in church the next Sunday, and one elderly lady felt so sorry for me, she gave me $20. I was so pathetic. Oh, it was terrible. Now, are we to assume that God is up there waiting, just sitting there waiting to see if anyone's going to respond to his gift? Is, is he checking his emails to see if did I get any responses to it? This, verb, this verse, it's not represented well when we put in the big question mark of whosoever. And I want to show you that because this is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order that, that's a purpose clause in the Greek, in order that, this is his purpose. Why did he give his son? He gave it. Everyone who is believing in him may not perish. That's his purpose. And everyone who is believing may have eternal life. That's his purpose. It's his purpose that that last phrase talks about. This is why he gave his son. He gave his son so that you, believing in Jesus, will have no possibilities, no potential, no chance of spiritually perishing. That's what it says. But rather that you're holding, you're having eternal life right now. That's why he gave his son. So then, this morning, rather than suggesting that God is just waiting eagerly for us to respond, we have a God who gave His Son with that great purpose that we no longer are in danger of death because we trust in Him. You know, this verse actually gives confidence with these words. There's confidence in every single phrase here. It's easy to lose confidence, isn't it? So easy for us to lose our confidence. You know, even when I was preparing this and I saw that, and I said, oh Lord, I, I, I don't know, should I present it like this or not? Because my goal is never that you lose confidence in your Bible. I never, ever want to leave you with some concern that your Bible isn't accurate. Your Bible is accurate, all right? I, I love God's Word, and I'm so glad we have it. We need that, desperately. But I thought, 
at the same time. But we need to see that God has done great things to strengthen our confidence in the message of this gospel. He didn't give his son just to sit back and see if flimsy human beings and their puny little ways will come about to decide that it was worthwhile and accept it. You see, even the writing of the, his, uh, of the English Bible in history presents a similar picture, if I could present it this way. In the 1300s, John Wycliffe, the first man to put it in English, first one to put these verses down so we could actually read them, John uh, Wycliffe wrote this. Now, understand John Wycliffe. He was persecuted for his faith his entire life. He died before they caught him. And they thought uh, uh, ten years later or so, hey, let's dig him up and burn him anyway. I mean, that really proved it. But nevertheless, they, they persecuted him intensely for it. So as he's writing these words, I can only picture the, the tension of persecution. He writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that each man that believeth in him perish not. First time it's recorded. John Wycliffe, 1500s. Here he records God's word in English. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That none that believe in him should perish. He used a change the adverb to the front there. That none who believe in him should perish but should have everlasting life. Now, both of those statements, first time in English, neither of them had the whosoever phrase in it. Both of them were declarations that we don't need to fear death because God gave his son. One year later, when the Bible was permitted to be written in English, a man by the name of Miles Coverdale took Tyndale's translation, worked it over a little bit and presented it so it can be accepted at the time, and what we find in Miles Tovendale's letter, his John 3.16 verse, is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. He was the first one to write it that way. First one. The Bishop's Bible, some 30 years later, said the same thing. The Geneva Bible, some 30, 20 years later, said the same thing. The King James Version, 1611, you know what it says, because you have copies of it, and you memorized it too. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is carried on, even to this point, the New American Standard has it, and probably many of your translations have it that way too. But I found this very interesting. A man by the name of Young, in 1898, wrote it this way. For God did so love the world that his son, his only begotten, he gave, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish. Right on the button. There's a modern translation, folks. It's called the Lexham Bible. 2010 was its publication date. It promised to be unparalleled with its transparency of the original language. It says, for God in this way loved the world, that he gave his one and only son in order that everyone who believes in him will not perish. Now, all of those statements I just read to you, from Young's to Tyndale's to 
Wycliffe's to what I've shared with you this morning, they all come to the same conclusion. This is a statement, not a question mark. This is a statement that we who believe in him will not perish. Everyone who believes in him will not perish. Now, I'm a firm believer in the sovereignty of God. I'm a firm believer that when he saves souls, he saves souls. I think of regeneration, that great theological truth of regeneration. How much did we need that? Well, Scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I would say we were pretty desperate at that point. After all, what can dead people do? Nothing. And it says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of God. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love in which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. If he had not done that, we would have never known life. God reached down and gave this dead soul life. He regenerated me. He didn't wait for me to ask, by the way. I was incapable of it. He did it. He did it. There's another principle we read in in theology called the drawing. The drawing, D-R-A-W-I-N-G. Here's a truth that tends to get passed by, especially by those who want a little credit for their salvation. In John chapter 6, great little passage here. You might want to follow it since you're not that far away. John 6, verse 37, and, and the verses that follow. Look at these words, folks. It says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's powerful. And no one who comes to me I will certainly cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds, not whosoever again, but everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Does that sound powerful to you? Now look at the next verse, 44. It's a stunner. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now I will raise him up on the last day. That's God's sovereignty in our salvation. Initiating it. Drawing us to him. We would not have come otherwise. That's what the text says. We use words like predestination and some people start blowing circuit breakers with the idea. Predestination. Romans 8. If you look at verse 28, 29, 30, those verses there, powerful little set there. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love Him, right? 
Yes. It goes on to say, those who he calls according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I think he just covered all the bases. From one end to the other, who's doing the work? God is doing the work. He has done this great thing. It's working together, his will for our good. We use the word election sometimes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, uh, uh, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, if you want to take credit for your salvation, you've got to get up earlier than he you got to give credit for the fact that you were around before this world was created. Most of us won't even admit to being alive for the number of years we are. But before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Does that just rattle you on the inside a little bit? Just think about that. He chose you before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, if God has so designed our salvation to have his fingerprints of sovereignty all over it, and it is, why would he leave the results of the death of his son to the whim of our response? Would you have designed it that way? I don't think so. We, like sheep, go astray. We, like the rest, do not seek after God. We were dead, incapable of response, helpless, hopeless. We were even his enemy, were we not? And yet God's salvation is so powerful... So very powerful. His planning goes from eternity past. His purchase of us is by the life of His Son. And the results of that is that you must, really, you must never fear death. That's what it says. He did this so that we will not perish. That's what it says. You will never perish. You will always have eternal life. God caused you to believe in that Son. So that's what the verse is that you have in front of you in John 3.16. It's an exclamation point. That God is going to see you through to the end. There won't be any slip up along the way. He's not going to say, oops, when it comes to your spiritual life. The price of his son is too great for him to leave the results to us. See what I'm trying to communicate? This is what stunned me when I was in that passage. I said, wow, this is just too powerful. When I think of Jesus there in that upper room, just before he goes to a cross to die for his disciples and for you and me, he says in an episode just before that, 
I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked a question. You know what it was? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? When we approach this table today, we don't come with some sort of pride of accomplishment, I hope. (laughs) Somehow to think that it was a little bit of us that brought this about. Let us not approach this table today with uncertainty in our salvation, as if it's some feeble thing, as if it's capable of crashing down around us if we just take the wrong step, if we just don't do exactly everything by its pins and points and its spots. and If we're not real careful, this salvation is fragile. I want you to look again at what the death of Christ has accomplished. What has it accomplished? It's a solid rock foundation of our faith. The death of Christ is what God meant when He said, He who began the good work in you will complete it to the very end. It's the same God who gave His Son that loves you and loves you forever. Let's not turn the table around backwards and get a good view of ourselves. Let's turn it to where it should be. Let's look at our God. The one who loves us so greatly, He gave His only begotten Son. See, His great purpose will never be thwarted. Never be thwarted. He saved us from perishing by His grace and by His strength. We will never perish. That's an exclamation. We have everlasting life. That's an exclamation. Let's approach the table today with hearts that appreciate what He has done. Let's look again at this God who has saved us and the power that He has to keep us, to hold us. As He has loved us so, we take of this bread, and we take of this cup to remember that He gave His Son. Now, in case you wonder if my sins are forgiven, look at a cross. If you wonder if God loves you today, look at a cross. As you take of this cup as you take of this bread. Remember what Jesus has done. That very act is a demonstration of God's love for you. And it is today and it's always a demonstration of His love for you. What a powerful little verse that is. What a great statement it is. And let's thank Him for that and then I'll have the men come up and assist me in our communion service. Heavenly Father, we cannot take another step without acknowledging that everything we are, everything you have made us, even into the depths of our salvation, of every single aspect that you're doing, is what you have done. What a great God you are to love us when we're so unlovable. When we were yet your enemies, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
to demonstrate your love for us. What an awesome display this is before us. Let us not walk through it in such a careless manner. So as to think purely of ourselves and what we did to bring us to this point or how we're going to keep it going. But let us recall again the greatness of our God and the greatness of the salvation and the greatness of the sacrifice that was given for us and the greatness of the purpose that we will never perish, but we have everlasting life. Thank you for what you have done. May every heart approach this table today when we take of this bread and take of this cup. May we be thankful for what you have done. And may praise and worship arise before your throne even at this hour from a grateful congregation. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.